and welcome back to Fully Equipped. Jonathan Wall joined by my good buddy, Chris McCormick. Chris, what's going on? We're missing one of the three stooges this week. We're, uh, we're flying solo today. I'm, uh, I'm here in Scottsdale. I should, should uh, be on the road heading to Denver right now, but due to circumstances beyond my control and more technical difficulties than I care to talk about <laughs> before I go play in oncoming traffic, I am still sitting here. <laughs> Waiting to uh, waiting to depart. Maybe well, today. A, Maybe tomorrow. Who knows? As long as I'm there by Saturday, we'll be good to go. Well, it's always good to see your bright, smiling face on this Wednesday. Oh. You know, it, it's <laughs> I, I do I do feel like I need <coughs> like something to make me happy because it's been a whole lot of just 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 a lot of like negativity recently. I mean. So I got a text from Gene. If you're wondering, if everybody's wondering where Gene is, he texted me on Tuesday and said that his mom had a major stroke. So he had to go to Palm Springs. So our thoughts are with Gene and his mom. It doesn't sound like it's good, but, um, you know, it's, unfortunately this is kind of part of life and he's, uh, he's trying to figure it all right now and just want to let Gene know that we're thinking about him. So absolutely. Yeah. And also, man, just this stuff going on, just being a, a Texan, the stuff going on in Uvalde right now. And I was with one of my kids. Actually, two of them had, you know, elementary age graduations today. And just a lot of a lot of stuff going on right now in the world that just makes you feel like you got to reprioritize. And, you know, deepest sympathies go out to all the families there in Uvalde. It's just, man, I don't even really know what else to imagine. say. Yeah, I know. can't even I mean, imagine. I think Steve Kerr, the the head coach for the Golden State Warriors, said it best when he he you know got fired up and said like When are we going to do something? You know, and and that's sort of how I feel is like When are we going to do something? And I'm not going to get here and, and get political, but you know, when something like this happens, and it's not the first time that something like this has happened, it's just it makes you wonder like When are when are we going to do something about this? Because it's a it's a major problem and it continues to be a problem. That it does, my friend, and it always always begs the question. There's there's things that you can do, but at the end of the day, if there's somebody that is just that sick and twisted, they're going to figure out a way to do whatever it is that they want to do, and that's the uh, that's the scary part about it. Is it doesn't matter essentially uh, what it is that we do, they're going to find a way to execute whatever sick and twisted thing it is they want to do. Yeah. If you have kids, hug them, tell them you love them, all the, all the things that you probably do anyway. But yeah, it, it definitely puts things into perspective, especially this time of the year as we're going into graduations and rolling into summer around most of the country. Anyway, enough of me being a downer. Before we get into this week's topics, I want to let you know that this week's episode of Fully Equipped is brought to you by our good friends at Golf Pride and their new CPX grip. You've heard us talk about the CPX before. What makes it special is the Exo Diamond quilted pattern that's on the outside of the grip. Similar to the grips that you'd find on a BMX bike, it's going to help reduce vibrations in your hand. That can help a whole lot of golfers, golfers that are playing on cold mornings. 
It's going to help reduce those vibrations. Not going to give you those shots where if you catch one a little bit off the toe, you're not going to feel it up into your hands and your arms. But even if you're a golfer who plays a lot of rounds, it's going to help reduce those vibrations. And as we've discussed on the podcast before, you know, steel shafts have the ability to, to add, to send those vibrations up into your body. And over time through a round of golf, you're going to feel it and you're going to feel the fatigue that comes from it. So this script is going to maybe help you play 27 holes, 36 holes, or just help you feel a little bit better after your round. As always, if you want to learn more about Golf Pride CPX script, go check it out on golfpride.com or at your local retailer. All right, let's recap the PGA Championship and all the gear news. Before we get into it, JT is your champion. That would be Justin Thomas. He wins his second PGA Championship at Southern Hills. It was... I don't think a lot of people expected JT to to be there at the end. I mean, he was he was in contention on the back nine, but most didn't think he was close enough. And then Mito Pereira starts leaking oil, and we have a playoff not featuring Mito Pereira, but Justin Thomas somehow finds a way to get it done. And I mean, it it was fun to watch. You know, the PGA Championship. I think I mentioned this on last week's pod where we had our instruction editor, Luke Curdenine, and decades, Scott Fawcett on. We were live from Tulsa. If you missed that episode, go back and check it out. But, you know, I, I thought that that JT was going to be in the mix. Southern Hill sets up well for, for the long hitters. And one of the clubs in his bag, Chris, that I think – look, I'm, I'm just going to say it. I called this one again. The previous right, week – the previous week, <clears throat> Justin Thomas switches putters, and he had a, he had a decent week. So JT was in, I would say he was like 95th in strokes game putting, entering the Byron Nelson, and he decides to change putters, and he's got he had a pretty decent week on the greens at uh, TPC Craig Ranch just outside of Dallas, and he finishes 20th in strokes game putting, and I decide to just throw it out there. I said, JT's prime for a big week at the PGA. That was, that was pretty much my headline. And more often than not, those headlines are completely off base. I, I never get them right, but every once in a while, your boy, just like that squirrel, he finds a nut and Justin Thomas wins in his second start with this new Scotty Cameron T5 putter. So for those that have seen the putter, it has a very similar shape to the X5 that JT's been using for several years now. He went from a Newport 2 into that um, X5, you know, winged mallet shape. But one of the big changes for him when he went into that shape initially was he went from your standard plumber, L-neck, whatever you want to call it, into a short slant. And we typically will see short slants on mallets. Um, why? That's probably a question that a lot of golfers might be wondering. Why Why is it, Chris, why is it that we typically see the short slant on a mallet and we don't see the standard L-neck plumber's neck that you would see on like a lot of the Newport 2s or an answer style putter? I mean, you're, you're starting to see more and more of the the short slants incorporated. I, actually, I should say, in more of these boutique style putter companies that are popping up, you're seeing 
just a huge variety of you know flow necks and slant necks and like you said the the traditional plumber's neck and they're uh they're kind of bridging the gap from what we would consider traditional styling but the uh that little short slant neck uh kind of became popularized when uh TaylorMade actually threw it on their their spider line and if we recall uh DJ kind of put that short slant with that uh that spider tour that he had uh, kind of on the map and made it, made it kind of the mainstream design. Now you've seen more and more manufacturers incorporating that, that short slant into the mallet design, but it does provide that stability that you would typically expect in a mallet, but gives it just a little bit of toe hang or toe flare and allows the, uh, the head to rotate a little more than just the traditional uh, face balanced option. Yeah. So that was, JT's neck a choice on his X5 until the Byron Nelson. And then he makes a pretty significant change. He goes from the slant into what Scotty calls a knuckle neck. Now, this isn't something that you're going to be able to find out at the retail. I mean, if you were to if you were to go to your big box golf store, you're not going to find a putter with a knuckle neck because this is something that's reserved for tour pros. But it's essentially a a kind of a garage design of the plumber slash L neck that you'd find on a new port too. And, um, having talked to Scotty before the custom knuckle neck on this putter that JT used for the first time with the Byron Nelson, it typically takes about a day to weld. You got to cut the shaft, you got to sandblast the knuckle. But at the end, I actually posted some photos on my uh, Twitter account at Jonathan R wall of JT's new putter. You can see, I mean, the neck looks different because it's not, it's not a one piece material that they're using to create it, but it's very similar to what you'd find on a Newport two. And again, as I mentioned, JT has used a Newport two in the past. And that was sort of the impetus behind this move. As he said to Drew page, who's Scotty Cameron's tour rep. Look, I, I like the, the shape of that X five, but maybe we try and do the best of both worlds and give me something with a similar closure rate to that Newport two, but doing it in an X five head shape. And that's where he ends up picking up this new T five Scotty Kerman putter. He actually, <laughs> this is the funny thing. So I saw it and I asked drew the week of the Byron Nelson, Hey, is this a new putter? And he said, well, kinda it's, it's new as in you're seeing it for the first time, but the putter was actually almost a year old. So if you can if you go back to the Open Championship last year, JT used a very similar putter to this T5 that he won with at the PGA Championship. But he had some he had some minor quibbles with the design, one of them being that he just felt like the putter had a very hollow sound to him and he wanted to try and match it up to his X5. So one of the things they did, as you can see in the photos that I posted, is they took a piece of aluminum and they used and they fashioned that aluminum plate with two screws into the back of the back cavity. And Drew was telling me that by fashioning that aluminum plate in the back, it was able to tune the sound of the putter and give it a bit more of a tingy sound, is is what he called it. And that sort of fixed all issues for JT. So he goes into that putter. He's got the sound that he wants, which I feel like is kind of an underrated thing, Chris. 
you know, we constantly talk about putters and the performance of the putter and the stability and, you know, how does it look at a dress? But we don't really talk a whole lot about sound, which I feel like is something that if you were to ask a tour pro, what are your priorities when you're looking for a new putter? I would say sound has got to be up there in the top two. You think I'm crazy? No. I mean, it's feel and sound go hand in hand. A lot of players interpret feel with sound. And I would put it definitely top three is the sound as the, again, being tied to feel, but the, the shape of it, the optics of it, the feel slash sound of it. Those are always what you get from, from the guys on tour. It's, I like the shape. I like the optics. I like the feel and or sound and you can manipulate sound with, you know, a multitude of different materials. Also how you mill the face, where you mill the face, how deep you mill the face or an insert. And then obviously what that insert is made out of. There's a lot of different components that go into fine tuning sound and feel. Yeah. I, for me personally, sound is probably top two. I would say I just can't get, I can't get a putter with a, with a really soft sound. I need a little bit of a click coming off the face. And for I me, like the that, click. yeah, I know. And I know a lot of guys that hate it. A lot of guys that really like a, a softer, more muted sound at impact, but I, I have to have some sort of a click to me. The click just goes hand in hand with a, a ball that's rolling end over end. And it's a consistent roll. And I'm not a guy that's consistently rolling the golf ball in the greens, but at least it, it adds a little bit of confidence when I have that louder sound. So different strokes, different folks, I guess. For sure. For um, sure. But I, I also point that out because if you look at the face on JT's putter, somebody pointed out, they're like, is that a smooth face? And it's actually not completely smooth like Tiger's putter, but it has very subtle mill marks on it. It's not a deep milled putter. So I, I feel like that goes hand in hand with this aluminum plate. The, the shallower, the milling marks on the face, the, the louder the putter is going to sound, the deeper, the milling marks on the face, the, the softer it's going to sound. So that's another reason why I think JT's probably getting a, a little bit of a, as he called it, the tingy sound at impact is just because he's got the plate and he's got the shallower milling marks. Um, so he, Throws his putter in the bag. He tests it at home. One of the things that I guess I didn't realize when he played Byron Nelson is he hadn't played since RBC Heritage. So he'd had about a month off between starts. And during that time, he went home and he just worked with this putter. And it was it was more kind of a confidence thing. He just needed to get comfortable with it on the greens, play with it in money matches at home, and just see some putts drop. And lo and behold, he goes from 20th in strokes gained at the Byron Nelson he finishes the week at Southern Hills second in strokes game putting. And JT's one of those guys, we're kind of similar to Rory. If he's got the putter going, the rest of the game falls into place and he just becomes deadly on the golf course. And I think that's where we're at with JT is if the last two weeks are a sign of things to come, I mean... <laughs> JT is going to see a couple more out of him. Yeah. I, I I would say I'm looking to see at least like two to three more. All right. Maybe not majors, but I could definitely see him winning two to three more times on the PGA tour before the tour championship. 
I think I think it was the oh, it's only piece of the puzzle as I wrote about in the wall to wall a couple of weeks ago, which is our gear notes column on golf.com. You know, JT was a perfect 12 for 12 in cuts made. He'd only finished outside the top 25 on three occasions this season. And one of them was a, was at the Dell match play, which really doesn't count. And he was ranked highly in all the strokes gain categories inside the top 30 in, in five of them. And the only one that he was struggling in was putting. I mean, there's a guy right right there. If he gets the putter going, even even lukewarm, he's gonna win. So if, okay. you, if you're so, yeah, yeah. Question. Question. Uh-huh. Yeah. So if we're if we're talking about players that are hot, so before the end of the year, do you say JT has more wins? Or do you think Scheffler continues on this just steamroll that we've seen him? have thus far this year who's who's going to have more at the end of 22 i'll say i'll say jt ends up with as many wins as scotty scotty's at four right now okay i say i say jt at the end of the year yep yep i think it's so difficult chris and i was actually talking to this with uh with an instructor last week when i was at southern hills and it's funny, I actually was having the same conversation with Bob Vokey too. Voke was was on site at Southern Hills. It was always great to see Voke. And, you know, the great thing for him is he now gets to kind of play the the you know, the more forward facing role for Vokey. Sure. And he leaves a lot of the the you know, the heavy lifting to Aaron Dill, who can handle it week in, week out now. So I, I think Voke enjoys it. But anyway, we were having this conversation about, you know, I, I feel I feel like we're never going to see another tiger again. And by that, I mean a guy who just completely dominates a sport because it's so difficult to have a really hot stretch. And I think that's why we should give Scotty Scheffler's recent run a lot more respect than maybe we, we are. I'm just not sure people realize how great that run was because to, to win that many times in such a short span with how deep the talent pool is, in professional golf, yeah. especially at that level, it's just it's so difficult to go on runs like that. And that's why I think JT's one of those guys, I will say, that if he gets the putter going, which has sort of been his bugaboo recently, I think that he his his A game is better than a lot of other guys' A game. And and I think even if you even if he has his B plus game, I think he's in contention and probably probably, you know, pips a couple of wins. Kind of similar like you did at the PGA Championship where a guy just, you know, is leaking oil down the stretch and JT finds a way to win. So I could see that happening, but yeah, it's so difficult. I just I just don't know if Scotty can go on another run like that. And you know, four wins in a season is crazy, especially with one of them being the Masters. So yeah, I'll say JT. I'll say he ends up matching Scotty with four at the end of the year. Just curious what your take was going to be, you know, having uh, access to these guys and watching them up close and personal, talking to them. Yeah, I mean, what do you think? Or would you would you take Scotty or JT? I would. I can see Scotty putting a couple more under his belt. I mean, he's not as he's not as seasoned as what we would say some of the other marquee players are. So I still think he has that that drive. Still think he's he's hungry and competitive. He's not uh, he's not letting his foot off the gas yet. So some of the guys that are out there and they win a few every year and just kind of 
fall into that status quo per se. I I don't think we're there with Scheffler yet, and I could see him, like I said, just keeping his foot on the gas a little more and bringing out a couple more wins before the end of the season. I'm gonna say he I'm gonna say he brings at least two more home before the close of 22. Six would be a strong season. <clears throat> I'm gonna call it. I'm saying. I'm saying six. Is one of them a major? Don't know if it's going to be a major. I mean, uh, that. I mean, looking at the venues, I I don't know if it's going to be a major. I'm going to say no, no additional major this year. Okay, but two more right. wins nonetheless. All right, six is still a very bold take right there. I like it. Taking it. I am taking it. All right. So we go from JT to. I would say this was the most relatable gear story from, from last week at the PGA Webb Simpson is, I feel like a lot of better players were probably nodding their head in agreement, reading Webb's quotes from last week. So of all the guys in the field, I would say Webb is one of the few that you could categorize as a blade lifer. Like that guy's played blade irons for for pretty much his entire professional career. I remember him playing blades even when he was when he was at Wake Forest, junior golf. He says he's played cavity backs a couple of times, but man, I don't it's, remember it. I don't I neither do I. And so, but hey, this is the guy's actually he's saying it and I'm 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 going to go with the guy who actually has probably touched the irons as opposed sure. to me who's like, "Oh, I can't, you know, I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday." Um Anyway, so Webb goes from the Titleist 620MBs into the Titleist T100s. But it's the reason why he does that I find so amusing. So Webb was asked about why he went into the irons. He had a pretty good week. You know, this is a guy who from 2015 to 2020 didn't rank outside the top 25 in strokes gained approach the green on the PGA Tour for an entire season. But he had dipped to 84th entering the PGA and one of the things that that he had been thinking about was like man how do like how do I get back on track with a part of my game I would say Webb was one of the best iron players I mean so reliable you could pick him in majors especially a US Open or on tighter golf courses just simply because he was so damn accurate but he wants to find a way to get the irons to be a strength again and he had gotten a suggestion from his caddy, Paul Tesori, like, look, let's just, let's shake it up a little bit. Like, what, what do we have to lose at this point? And, you know, Webb had told me he's really picky about his irons, but the T100s to him still looked a little bit like a blade. And I think, Chris, you and I have noticed this. You know, T100s, before they were called the T100, was called the AP2. And... The AP2 to me was a little bit more, I mean, you had some great players playing at Jordan Spieth in particular, but it always felt like it was a little bit kind of towing that line between like a game improvement and a better player iron, had a slightly thicker top line, a little bit wider sole. And then when they changed the name and went to the T-Series, the T100 had a completely different look. It was reduced offset thinner top line. I mean, it looks, it looks like a, almost like a bona fide, like elite ball striker iron. And so Webb found the iron to be sort of this, this 
perfect complement to his iron game because, you know, like you'd expect, this iron gives him a bit more forgiveness compared to a blade because the T100 is a cavity back iron. But one of the things that he noticed is he said that these the T100s were better for him out of the rough, better distance control, better on miss hits. Um, but the funny part was he said, uh, I guess I was being stubborn, but finally, but uh, finally listened and I really like them. And I think that kind of goes with a lot of better players and I'll, I'll throw myself out there when I was actually a better player and not a want to be better player who doesn't play very much. There was that point where I always wanted to play the, the really small cavity backs or a set of blades. If I could actually find a set of blades in lefty. And it was a total vanity play. Like I shouldn't have been playing those. Webb Simpson definitely can play blades, but I do feel like there's a point where you you do have to to put your ego at the door and say, "All right, what else is out there?" And and I think T100 is a great example that you can get into an iron that looks like a blade that has a bit more forgiveness that might be better out of the rough. And that's what Webb was able to get with the T100. Now, there was an interesting change that he also made um, in lockstep with this change to T100. He also switched to the Titles Pro V1, the, the most recent, the 2021 version, because he had just noticed that he was seeing a decrease in spin and that V1 golf ball, the new version, was able to kind of help him regain that spin. So Webb goes from being stubborn Webb Simpson to a guy who fires a 65 during the third round when most guys would have been happy with an even par round and he gained over four and a half shots on the field with the irons. Wow. Yeah. I think it's a pretty good a week for a guy. goes a long way. I know. Those irons are good. And hey, if, if you don't want to just play the T100 version, they have an S version that I was able to try out at their Oceanside TPI facility. Th- those things are rocket ships. I mean, I've, I've used that word to talk about irons before, but when the S version came out before, it was the previous version was just strengthened lofts. Whereas with this, when I hit it, I was getting like a similar, a similar launch and spin to the T1s, but like 10 extra yards of carry. That's that's kind of what we've been seeing. I mean, the the guys that are a little higher launching, higher spinning, go right into that T100s, and I mean, it is a a fantastic complement. And I really like the fact that they engineered this head slightly differently to to complement the two degrees stronger loft, and it's not just a a loft jacking maneuver. It's a completely separate head designed to be specifically two degrees stronger. Yeah, exactly. And and that's what I loved about these because when I first saw them, I had I kind of rolled my eyes and was like, ah, here we go again. I'm just gonna come <laughs> out with the same S version again. And it's not. It's they're really good, but again, if you're one of those golfers that um maybe needs a bit more distance, the S version is is a great complement to to your bag. So certainly worth checking out. Webb Simpson would attest. Now, even though he wasn't in the S version, going to T100 certainly made sense. And I think based on the week that he had, we're going to see him in the bag for the uh, for the future. Maybe maybe this is a new thing. Maybe Webb's going to put the blades away forever and just stick with cavity back. So we'll see what happens there. A couple other things that I found interesting. 
Dustin Johnson. This is a change that I never thought I'd ever see, Chris. He adds a nine wood to the bag. Yes. Long live the high lofted fairway wood. I, I love this. Not only did he have a nine wood in the bag last week, but he also had a seven wood in the bag. I mean, seven wood, you? seven wood and a nine wood. I just, there's something about the, re, the majors recently where we've seen a lot of guys and I go back to, to 2020 PGA championship at Harding. There were a bunch of guys in that field that actually carried nine woods. And that was to help extract the golf ball from the rough, that high lofted fairway wood, the sole on that. It really cuts through that rough and can help get the ball out. For DJ, it was about finding a club for the second shots around the golf course, Southern Hills. I mean, they had a couple of par fives that were over 600 yards. It is a big ballpark. I hate using that word, but it really is. I mean, it was it was playing over 7,500 for the week. And so DJ wanted a club that could help get him in play for, you know, a short, a short wedge in on par fives if he couldn't reach it in two. And that's where this nine wood came into play. It was a tailor-made stealth. So DJ throws that in the bag. It was for, for the gear nerds out there, that nine wood was tipped two inches, D4 swing weight, and generated about 4,200 RPMs of spin which was more than the three iron that it replaced. And for DJ, a nine wood, do you want to guess what the carry yardage is on a nine wood, Chris, for DJ? Carry yardage on a nine wood. I'm going to put it in that 240 range. Yeah, 245. There we go. That's why you have the job that you do because you know the carry yardages even for the big pros. So anyway, DJ with the nine wood, again, such a fun addition to the bag. Never a club in, in my lifetime that I'd ever expect to see in the hands of a guy like DJ. But it certainly fit for, for a golf course like that, even though he didn't have the greatest week. He did have the nine wood and that's all that matters. The other one that I found interesting, Patrick Reed had a nine and a half degree Grindworks prototype driver. Now this is interesting only because Patrick Reed has a has a gear deal with PXG. Interesting. Does he though? Does he? he well, he was wearing the hat. And that agreement is mm. to play the driver. And the driver wasn't in the bag last week. That's that, that's why I'm saying does he? I mean it's no <laughs> secret that well, they're uh, just they're just paying him money to wear the hat. No, I'm saying it's it's no secret that Bob Parsons, uh, when you deviate from that contract, contract even in the slightest, it's uh, like an immediate termination. Doesn't really matter who you are. So I I don't know how long that PXG contract is going to be around if Driver was part of. It. Yeah, well, he had been playing a Callaway Driver even before the Grindworks. So. Mm. You may be onto something, Curious. but then why would he be wearing Curious. the PSG hat? I, I mean, it begs the question if there was some type of amendment to that contract for that particular golf club. But with the big push that they're making with Gen 5 driver and having tested the Gen 5 driver, it's pretty solid. So I would say it's one of the better PXG drivers that they've come out with. And yeah, they're making quite a push for it. So I'm, I'm curious to see how this comes out in the wash with P Reed and the, and the PXG contract. I need, I need some gear drama. Maybe this is, this is just what I needed. This could be it. This could be it. 
All right. So with that, I want to talk about our latest robo test. I think this is this was a fun one. We've done some ones recently that were very insightful. You know, we did one recently on should you be playing a a nine or a ten point five driver, and we went through all the different angles of attack to show you, you know, in which situation are you better off playing a nine or a ten point five. But we got to throw in some some of those tests that you're going to hear your buddies ask. Like, I wonder if you know, and then fill in the blank. So this one was, is there really a benefit? I mean, if you, if I were to play a range ball on the golf course, would it really matter? Would, would my, would my scores really go up that much versus a premium, you know, four piece golf ball that I'm paying, you know, 45 to 50 bucks a dozen? Well, we decided to run a test with a I would say they were like slightly to moderately worn range balls. So, you know, the, the dimples on the golf ball are starting to wear out. Yeah. It's your average range ball. Average range ball. Exactly. And we went head to head with that average range ball against your, a, a popular premium golf ball to see like, what are, what are the differences? And we didn't just hit it with one golf club. We hit 10 balls with each ball with each the the range ball and the premium with a driver at 105 and 95 miles an hour, a five iron at 85 miles an hour and a pitching wedge at 80 miles an hour. Now, why did we use those swing speeds? Because that's the swing speed of an average amateur golfer. And so we're trying to get an accurate representation of like, what are the, what are the differences in spin launch carry with each of the balls? So, Start from the top. Driver. What do you think the difference in carry yardage was between the range ball and the premium over those 10 balls hit? If I had to guess, I'm going to say nine yards. Okay. Well, first things first, before we get into the number, have you ever been desperate enough to play a range ball during a round just because you ran out? Even if I was, I would admit it, especially on this podcast with, with friends of mine that I know listen to this. So I, uh, I played the fifth. That's that. Yes. Yes, I have. That's a snake. <laughs> I was about to say, because I'm going to just, I'm going to admit it. I have plenty of times. Yes. Yes, I have. I have. The days, I, the days know, when, I've yeah. actually been, I've been on vacations and I've been on trips and golf happened when I didn't necessarily plan on it. And full disclosure, even when I was planning on playing and I may or may not have been, uh, too cheap to, uh, to go in the golf shop and actually buy a dozen of the golf ball that I play. Uh, so there may have been a half a dozen or so golf balls from the driving range that ended up in said rental bag. Yeah. Nice. Well, actually have you beat because not only did I lose probably close. I remember this one round. I lost probably close to a dozen golf balls. May have been one of the worst rounds I've ever had. And I was so grateful because one of the holes ran right by the range and I just like picked up a handful of range balls. Like I'm going to need every one of these. Going to need every one of these. I'm going to go through two dozen today. And I don't even remember what I shot that day. It was probably a thousand, but it was, it was a, a truly awful round of golf, and I did pick up a bunch of range balls. And I'm not sorry about it. 
I played I played with a couple of them for sure. And I swear yeah. I thought that they were magic because it's like, oh man, the ball's actually going straight. We'll see both that. That was that was gonna be my my next kind of query here. So I have also had absolute train wreck rounds of golf to where I am just pumping $4 ball after $4 ball off into the crap. And then upon one of the scavenger hunts, looking for brand new ball right out of sleeve immediately into the shit, you find something that Mm, is round and semi-white. And you grab this ball that doesn't even come close to the ball that you typically game. And then lo and behold, you're playing so terribly that this is now a ball you don't care if you lose. And wouldn't you know it, you end up finishing the round with that golf ball and hit it. I mean, just straight greens and regulation. You're getting up and down. I mean, it's, it's one of the most frustrating things ever, but I would, I would align. It's still so great. And I love that you've been in this situation before. Cause I've, I've been in this exact scenario more times than I can count where I'm playing and I'm playing terribly. And it, it's like, I can't, I'm, I've lost $50 worth of golf balls today. I cannot lose another yep. golf ball. And so I just go searching around in the woods, you know, and if, if the professor was on the podcast, he'd be, he'd be cackling right now talking about my oh, trips yeah. through the woods to find golf balls. But I did, and I would go in there and I'd find some beater ball and I'd there it is, the, tee it up. Callaway I'm like, I don't even bird. care. Yep. My, my game is in disarray right now. It does not deserve a premium golf ball. I'm just going to pick up whatever ball I find in the woods, throw it on the tee. And wouldn't you know it for the next 12 holes, I'm, you know, basically one over and I can't lose this golf yep. ball. And yep. I'm like, man, maybe I should buy a box of these balls. And it's like, no idiot. It's not, it's not the golf ball. I promise you it's not the golf ball. It's, it's the idiot who's trying to hit the golf ball and what a head case he is. So, yeah, but I, I do love that you, that you've been in this exact same situation. It makes, it's heartening. Oh, Let's put it that 100%. way. And All inevitably right. you always find that, that golf ball. That's like you know, a, a 50 cent golf ball that is you know, five, six plus years old. And, you know, they sell it at, at Walmart for $8 a dozen or something along those lines. And that's what you end up playing with. I've, I've, uh, man, I've lost, lost a lot of good balls, played with a lot of bad balls and, uh, yep. long, long may it continue. So anyway, all right, back to the numbers. So back to the numbers. with, with the driver during the, over those 10 shots, we saw a 12 yard on average drop off in distance at both 95 and 105, which I've kind of found interesting that it was a very similar drop off regardless of the swing speed. So 95, 105, 12 yard drop off. Now it's important to point out here as Gene discussed in the video that we have up on golf.com, you can check it up. On, you can check it on the site if you want to see the results in all their glory. But Gene points out that the difference in distance drop-off range from anywhere from two to three yards on some shots to upwards of 25 yards on oh. other shots. And it's important to point out that the robot is hitting the ball perfectly straight every time. So it's not the robot. It is most definitely the golf ball. But 
yeah, some golf balls you're going to see a very similar distance to maybe what you typically have on the golf course. Other times it might be 25 yards less just simply because it's a really worn out golf ball from the range. Um, but also in addition to the, the distance loss, there was a almost triple to quadruple deviation from the premium ball in terms of lateral dispersion. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So I point this out because, and we'll get into the, we'll get into the, you know, let's just do this first. I'll get through the five iron in the, in the pitching wedge before, before I get to my big point on all of this. So with the five iron, the range ball was eight yards shorter, but also had a range that was four times larger in the lateral dispersion than, than the premium golf ball <coughs> and the pitching wedge. And this is not going to surprise you, Chris, but it might surprise some golfers out there. The pitching wedge was four yards longer with the range ball than the premium golf ball. And that's just simply because you're not spinning it as much. So you're getting a, a more penetrating trajectory. And yep. oh, by the way, how much less spin are you seeing with a range ball versus a premium golf ball? It's about half the spin rate. Oh. Y- yeah, yeah. So I point all of this out. Now that now that we've gone through the numbers, let's talk about range practice, man. Because how many times have you been out at a golf course and you've watched some guy on the range at a at a public course hitting the yellow range balls, grinding over yardages? He's trying to hit everything perfect to this 130-yard flag with a pitching wedge. And you look over and you shake your head because the golf ball that he's using is so damn inconsistent. It's it's a two-piece golf ball with a cheap rubber core and a thick Serlin cover. And that Serlin cover is meant to provide durability, not yep. performance, like a urethane cover that you're gonna find on a you know 40, 45, 50 dollar dozen box of balls. And it's just you want to shake the guy and say, What are you doing? You're just wasting your time. And I think that's what I want to conclude this RoboTest with is there are plenty of ways that you can benefit from a driving range session. You can work on your tempo. You can work on your impact. You can work on your takeaway. But don't work on carry yardages with a bunch of beater range balls. Because you're you're banging your head against the wall just doing it. Yeah, I'll work on start line. I'll work on ball striking. I'll work on trajectories, but I mean, you're never going to see me out there with a range finder trying to grind on, on carry numbers. I mean, that's just not a thing. And I even downrange dispersion and curvature of the ball. And if I'm hitting the ball solid and it's coming out close to the window that I want to see it, I may see it move right to left or left to right. And that's not anything that I'm overly concerned about knowing the inconsistency of the ball that I'm hitting. And then you bring into the equation, if you're hitting it off of a mat and not off of grass on top of the inconsistency of the ball, that's just one more thing that's going to be, you know, kind of screwing with the flight of that ball potentially. So spin numbers aren't going to be accurate compared to off of, off of actual grass. So it's, it's one of those things that while you're practicing on the range, whether it be warm up or practice, practice with a purpose, but don't let that purpose be carry number. 
<laughs> just don't that. do it. Yeah, do not do not focus on the carry number. Like Chris said, their start line, trajectory, uh, as I mentioned, tempo, impact. There are so many things that you can work on that are going to benefit your game, but one of them that will never benefit your game with a regular range ball is carry yardages. Now, if you're one of the lucky SOBs out there that belongs to a really nice golf course with, you know, Titleist or TaylorMade or Callaway range balls, the hey, C-Sweeters? Congratulations. Yeah, the C-Sweeters. Congratulations. You, this this robo-test means nothing to you because your nice urethane golf balls are giving you very accurate yardages compared to the golf ball that's in your bag. But for those of us that play our golf at public courses, yeah, just stick with us and, and we won't lead you wrong on this one. Don't waste your time on carry yardages. That's all. Yep. All right. Last one for the day. Got some gear questions. Got some fun ones. Got one. Love it. Let's let's kick it off with a topic that I've gotten a lot of DMs about. And the irons were only introduced yesterday. Mira's new KM700 irons. I believe, Chris, you might have a video on these on on the Tour Validated channel. Uh, We do. Uh, DJ Lance and I, new little... New little project that we're working on, a video series called Tour Validated. Uh, we actually had an opportunity to, to do a little sneak peek of these guys before they officially launched. And I am uh, characteristically more of that cavity back, you know, somewhat game improvement. I need a little help kind of guy. Uh, I mean, just for, for reference, I've had you know, 770s in the bag. Uh, for quite a while, I've played the T100. I've played the T200 in uh, in some longer irons, and I've had success with those types of irons. Now, in testing this this KM700, I was very pleasantly surprised with the performance of it compared to the overall first impression and aesthetics. Now, it looks like a blade. It does. Is terrifying. It absolutely does, and. I'm sitting here talking to DJ off camera and I'm going, I don't know if we're going to be able to use any of my shots for this. The, you know, how, uh, how I genuinely uh, respond to a blade is I explore every strike location on the face and uh, I can, I can hit the same golf club you know, with nine different ball flights, all unintentional, of course. And the carry number is a big question mark. Now, I play to right around a five index right now. And looking at the sole of this KM700, I'm going, ooh, man, like this thing is small. Putting it down at a dress, I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful golf club. I mean, it is, it is literally a piece of art. And having an opportunity to hit this, Mira is known for that soft and responsive feel. And I'm characteristically a little bit of a toe striker. Now, what's really intriguing to me about this KM700 is the fact that they moved the CG and actually broadened the sweet spot on these irons to favor a little bit more towards the toe. So in my initial testing, I noticed immediately turf interaction, way more consistent than what I've seen in in previous generations of blade type of irons. And my strike location didn't change, but the feel and responsiveness that I got was really, really solid. 
And as I started hitting some of the, the eight irons, the seven irons and working my way up through the bag, I got up to the four iron. And by that point in time, I had so much confidence in the responsiveness of this club. I'm striping this thing and I don't play a four iron in my current setup. And I was just genuinely surprised at how playable this club was, even for somebody that's not necessarily the best and most consistent ball striker with irons and somebody that doesn't even play a four iron in their current setup. But the, uh, the entire set blended really, really well uh, out there with GC quad and the consistency in the carry number, the launch window and, and the spin profile, even when I did miss it a little bit was significantly more forgiving than what I was anticipating out of that iron. I was, I was pleasantly surprised across the board and sitting in the bag. They are awesome. <laughs> yeah, they they look so clean, and I think the general consensus is exactly that. They look at the bag, but can I play them? That was the that was the big question that I got yesterday from from people dropping into my DMs. Was sure was what what handicap range? You know, I'm I'm a ten. Can I play these? I'm a I'm a twelve. I'm an eight. Um, and so that was my question for you. Is after doing after doing the testing with them, where do you sort of fall on? okay, I feel like if you're in this handicap range, you can handle these irons. I mean, I would really kind of, again, being a club fitter and a, and kind of a numbers guy, I, I would want to see the player when it comes to their ball striking and consistency of ball striking. Uh, I can tell you that where I'm at five index, again, I would comfortably put these in my bag up to at least that five iron that I'm currently playing. And compared to the 770 that I have in the bag right now, and compared to the T200, the KM700 wasn't far off when it came to the carry numbers. Now, the lofts are a little different, but consistency-wise, I mean, I was really, really impressed. And what I liked was the height that I was able to hit that four iron. The four iron window was coming out really close to where my current five iron is. And I was loving it. And moving that CG out towards the toe, the entire test from the bottom of the bag all the way through that four iron, I didn't see anything show up from the left miss that I typically fight. And even when I was testing head to head against my gamer, uh, 700 was a straighter start line with a little bit more of a, a fade bias tendency to it. So for me that, that fights a left miss, I was very, very happy with the results that I saw from it. Now I would comfortably say if you're a decent ball striker and a halfway decent iron player, a, a 10 index could play these comfortably. There you go. All right. Next question comes from Samuel Howarth who wants to know, if there is a recommended four to five degree gapping in wedges, does the same rule apply in the woods? No. So if you're looking at and the most simplistic explanation I can give you is scoring club versus proximity club. So very few people are going to try and, and knock the, uh, knock the pin down from a, a range where you are using a wood. So if you have a little bit broader gap between the woods or a tighter gap between the woods, 
the the consistency that you're going to see between those clubs compared to a wedge it's it's just not there all right last one comes from bryce on instagram who wants to know how do you fit lie angle and shaft for wedges i've heard conflicting ideas about lie angle more upright than irons to prevent toe digging on low speed shots slash flatter than irons to account for toe droop the same goes for shafts going heavier and down a flex for increased feel. Um, kind of where, where are your thoughts on lie angle and shaft for wedges? So a lot of it depends. Again, there's, there's so many variables to take into account here. It, it, a lot of say. it just, I mean, it is, unfortunately, it's not a cop out answer. I mean, you have guys that like to play wedges flatter and have a more neutral or even open appearance with wedges. They don't want to see a ball go left. They'd rather see a ball go right for a right-handed player, a little bit more spin. Um, also it gives you the ability to, to flight the ball a little higher and therefore get it to land a little softer coming into the green. Uh, also on chip shots, you know, they want a little bit more turf interaction and also gives them the ability to camber the club, you know, forward, backwards and play a little variety with their wedges uh, if they have them a little flatter. And then you have guys on the other end of the spectrum that if 64 degrees is a standard, you know, they might have their wedges at 66 or 67. Hands are really close to the body. You know, they never really travel outside of just natural body lines, keep everything close, everything tight. They like to flight stuff low. They never hit really a full shot with it. Uh, chip shots and pitch shots are you know, hands forward in front of the leading edge and therefore a little bit more upright lie may be beneficial for that type of player. So it just kind of depends on stylistically what you want to do with a wedge. And when it comes to wedge shaft and flex and weight, uh, Again, general rule of thumb is to drop a flex and go up and wait. And that's just to accommodate that player that more often than not doesn't use the wedge with a full swing, but still keeps the same tempo and consistency in the, the swing that they do use on a wedge. Uh, but I've had just as many players continue that same shaft that they have in their irons all the way down through their wedges. So if you're a full swing guy with your wedges and I'm not going to slap you on the wrist and say, no, you can't put an X 100 in your wedge or an S 300 in your wedge or whatever the case may be. Do you need a wedge specific shaft, uh, for your wedges? No, not necessarily. And do you have to go up and wait? No, not necessarily. Can you keep it consistent? Yes. Would I drop weight? Ugh, that's where I start to go. I wouldn't make a recommendation to drop weight because when you are hitting those touch and feel shots, and you're chipping and pitching around the green with less than a full swing, the added weight more often than not does help to just stabilize that club a little bit. Yeah. I love that answer just because I wanted to respond back. You need to get with a fitter because for sure. Yeah. I mean, a fitter is going to help lead you down the right path. And I, I feel like in a situation like that, when you're talking about shaft and lie angle, it's, it's really important to find a good fitter who has a, a big matrix so that you can try some different things out, try some different line angles, try some shafts, pair them up and just see what feels good. 
and then maybe take a couple of those options out on the golf course because that's ultimately going to tell you if one is better than the other. That's that's the ultimate litmus test. And go out there yep. and and see what happens. But I mean, as much as like you said, it's not a cop out answer. But as much as we'd like to be, to tell you, you know, this is the hard and fast rule for Lyangle and shaft when it comes to wedges. Everybody's different. I feel like, and and that's where a good fitter can can at least give you some options and then you can take them from there, bring them out on the golf course and figure out if one feels better than the other. hundred percent. And I mean, you even, you even look at your more crafty skilled wedge players out there. I mean, they will deviate the lead wrist and intentionally try and hit dead handed shots off the toe. Yep. And I mean, you're, I would say if I had to categorize do better players trend one direction or another as far as lie angle i would say your better wedge players are going to trend more to the flat side and they don't necessarily want to see the ball moving off of their intended start line but if there is movement falling to the right would be from what i've seen 17 years of doing this falling right for a right-handed player would be the preferred shot shape yeah I would agree. So anyway, go get with a good fitter and get back to us if you got any follow-up questions. But if you have a good fitter, you're probably not going to be asking us any more questions about lie angle and shaft when it comes to your scoring tools. All uh, right, grind man. and bounce and turf interaction. That's where yeah. that's where you want to dial it in. Exactly. I think that's a good place to end it for episode 142 of Fully Equipped. No interview this week, but I've got a good one lined up for next week. So make sure you check out that episode. As always, if you want that gear goodness, you can check us out on social media. We are at fully underscore equipped on Twitter and at fluke of golf on Instagram. As I mentioned, tell your kids you love them. Give them a hug. Send some good thoughts Gene's way for his mom. Thanks as always for listening. See you next week.